In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Our guest this week on Money Tales is Ann Olson. Ann embarked on her entrepreneurial journey in 2011. When she started her first business, Ann found herself navigating uncharted territory as a female entrepreneur. She craved role models and networks to guide her along the way. She was specifically looking for women founders of companies generating over a million dollars a year in revenue. Anne got there through creativity and persistence. Today, Anne and her network are breaking barriers and defying expectations. Let me tell you more about Anne. She's the founding partner of Return on Good. Anne is a passionate advocate for using time, talent, and treasure to make the world a better place. Through impact investing, sustainable investing, venture funds, and strategic giving, Return on Good connects high-impact family offices with nonprofits and innovative organizations. Here are three key money topics Anne hits on in this conversation. First, the importance of finding your tribe to have money conversations with. A group of people you feel comfortable asking all your questions, celebrating your successes, and talking about failures. Second, how creating an alter ego can help facilitate difficult money conversations, especially when it comes to collecting payment from clients. And third, the importance of talking about both business and personal finances within your professional network. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Ann Olson. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammie, I want to talk about a conversation I had with a friend over dinner recently. We were talking about her philanthropic activities, and she was expressing disappointment that a charity that she really loves and cares a lot about and participates with ranks their donors, as many of them do, based on dollar giving amounts. My friend, while she does make financial contributions to this charity, her biggest contributions are the time and effort and skills that she donates to the charity, putting together different events, whether they're huge galas or small evening affairs. That's her thing. She's not interested in being on a board. She gets things done. Which is huge. It's very huge. And she always gets thanked by the charity and that feels good for her, but in their public accounting for all of the contributors to the organization, her name is often left off from the perspective of the value that she's giving in non-monetary means. And I thought that was an interesting Money Tales little conversation to talk about. Yeah, it's really interesting, Sandy, because I think of 
the sweat equity versus the cash or other type of asset equity and value in it. And I really appreciate her talking with you about it. And I think there should be a way that a philanthropy, a nonprofit quantifies that value. I agree with her. And I think it's priceless. It's how I enjoy giving. I feel like it connects my dollar donation with what they're doing. It's wonderful when you can contribute more than just financial capital to an organization. And I think there is room for many organizations to recognize that more publicly. A fun conversation. I encouraged her to reach out to the executive director. As a marketer, I can't stop thinking about like, gosh, we neglect things like this. It's sometimes so obvious the minute you said it, but I hadn't really thought about it before. It's a great idea. A little message to the nonprofits out there. Great opportunity to highlight your donors of all sorts of assets. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Anne Olson. It's wonderful to be talking with you on Money Tales. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Cami and Sandy. And I love what you were just talking about in relation to philanthropy. Definitely something what we have spent a lot of time on. There are a number of organizations that look at both the financial commitments and responsibilities and actions of potential donors, as well as in-kind donations. The really smart nonprofits will look at that and measure some of those things that are less quantifiable in dollars and cents and attribute value to those. And I know over the years in working in higher education that both alumni engagement and alumni giving are measurable things that both US News and World Report looks at, as well as many alumni giving offices. Love you having this conversation. I think that there are a number of different ways in which you can, as a nonprofit, both reward and recognize those donors who are giving of their time and their talent, and also really put them in a different category right alongside those top financial givers as people who have just as importantly given of their time, which is really, of course, one of the most important treasures that we have. Thanks for correcting. I called it sweat equity. I like in kind better. It's a nicer way of... <laughs> Actually, we've seen a number of boards that are really interested in when people are thinking about giving financial donations, doing in-kind donations that are service-related, whether it's you own a marketing agency and you're redesigning that nonprofit's website, or you're doing paid advertising for them, or you're bringing some level of talent acquisition and staffing to their nonprofit. But yeah, there are a number of ways that different individuals can participate that are outside of just writing a check. And actually, those donors are oftentimes the ones who end up writing bigger checks in the end because of their involvement and awareness of the organization. They're more engaged. Absolutely. Thanks for adding that commentary. And would you also introduce yourself and share two to three pivotal moments that have happened in your life really impacting who you are today? My name is Ann Olson. I am currently a partner at Return on Good. Return on Good is a company that my husband and partner and I started several years ago, and it is focused on two key categories. We work on impact investing, so helping companies that have socially good causes and some value to either the environment, society, education, the climate, find investors. And we also work with nonprofits. So we do strategic philanthropy work, especially for newer 501c3s that are looking to build their strategy and structure and to be able to both scale and build endowments as well as that longitudinal outlook in relation to the success of their organization. One of the things that I would say is most pivotal is that my father was an entrepreneur as I was growing up and my mother actually worked with him 
We as children did a lot of mailings in our house, in our basement. We did a lot of sweat equity work in order to help him make his business successful. And I would say that the path to success is never overnight and you have to put the work in. When any of my brothers and sisters or I have found success, it's been because of the time and energy and effort that we put into something. And I try and share that lesson with my children every day that with reality TV, sometimes things look like they could be an easy overnight success, but the Beatles and their overnight success took 26 years. So I think there are many times in my life where I've looked at success and been really proud of something that I've done. And it has really been because of that. Another pivotal moment in my life is when you look back at something that you thought was going to be easier than it was. And you really think back about all the obstacles you've overcome in order to do it. And so in 2011, I started my first business as an entrepreneur. And as a female-owned company, I really didn't have as many ideally role models to look to of women who had done over a million dollars in business that had been successful in the area that I was from. And so looking to build those networks and looking to really develop those relationships was something very important to me. So a number of different women that I've met across my life, one being Angela Bostic, who is a chief marketing officer at Emory, who now is at the Wharton School, and connecting with those women has really helped me to see what's possible and to have a network of like-minded individuals that I feel like are both role models, leaders, companions, as well as friends there to help you in your success. Another final pivotal moment in my life was joining the Women of Wealth Group. I had met at Apia and Jennifer Burns at a conference in California and immediately became connected to their energy, learned more about them as a group. And I think that it was interesting to me to have a group of women who both formed a community and cared about each other and their business success, but also were really interested in their financial goals and in having conversations about money and having conversations about insurance policies and Bitcoin and stock options. And it was really the first time I've ever been with a networking group of women who were focused on financial, who weren't afraid to talk about money, who weren't afraid to share success stories, who weren't afraid to share failures, honestly, and who were all cheering for each other in relation to we as a community growing, learning, and becoming better by lifting each other up. That was probably one of the most pivotal moments in the last two to three years in meeting that group. Such a great example of learning as you're growing up and then how we learn as adults and through networks. We'll get there. Before we do, tell us with two entrepreneurial parents and your in there providing some support. When did money start having meaning to you as a child? My parents were always great at teaching us the value of the dollar. My brother and I had a paper route, the kind that you used to ride a bike or walk and deliver the Washington Evening Journal in the afternoon. And we had a strategy where I would take one part of the neighborhood where we walked the paper. He took the part where we we rode our bike. And I think It was the first time that I really had a paycheck at that age and had realized per every paper delivered what I was receiving as far as money. And the other very, very valuable lesson was if you're not there to do the job, you don't get paid. Ooh, that's a good one. That was definitely probably the first outside money. 
My parents always gave us an allowance growing up that was based on chores. Whether you wanted the guest jeans that were at the new store or whether you wanted the new pair of Nikes, et cetera, there was always a dollar tied to that in some level of work that amounted to it. They did a great job of really aligning both quantifiable and measurable outcomes of output of work with actually what things cost. And it sounds like you had a very rich upbringing with all these wonderful lessons that you were having. As you grew into an adult, what caused you to move in the direction of entrepreneurship for yourself? As I evaluated and really looked at my career and what I love doing, one of the key books that I love is Strengths Finder and being able to identify the things that you feel like are your true calling and what will make you happy. And several of my strengths are futuristic, achievement, et cetera. And so in looking at the career I was in and where I wanted to go, I really felt like there was an opportunity to make a big difference in starting our own company. With that futuristic goal set, I was really excited to move to an area where I felt like we could add value. And in the education space, the adult student at that point in time in 2011 was very overlooked as both an audience that we marketed to and or recruited to colleges as well as digital marketing. Digital marketing was something that really hadn't been mainstream in the education space. Colleges were afraid to advertise on Facebook, to put notes out there on LinkedIn and Twitter, to really create a lot of YouTube content because they didn't really feel it was their space. We started our digital marketing company with those two audiences in mind and really had tremendous success because of the fact that the audiences weren't necessarily capitalized on yet. And we were first to market in that space. And so it really just evolved into something that I was passionate about and excited about. And I think whenever you're passionate and excited about your job and your work, it really shows in assets and in the success of your client. When and where did money show up in the conversations you were having as a young entrepreneur without a network? They showed up every day. When we started the business, I actually had a bank loan and had to present a business plan. It was before the Stanford Business Model Canvas was really popular to the bank and had a great conversation with the payment terms of that loan and when the loan would be due. Month to month, we worked to cash flow positive every single month. And it was really interesting because about three months into the business, we had to start doing some collections. And My business partner said, the CEO of the company can't be doing collections. And so we created an email for Crystal, aka me, my alter ego, Crystal from Converge, who ended up doing collections. And every Friday afternoon, Crystal would go through every aged accounts receivable and do collections to make sure that we had money coming in the door in order to pay our employees. And so from the very beginning of a bank loan to really looking at the receivables and looking at the overall forecast and future of the company, it was something that was always top of mind. Okay, and this is good. (laughs) Do you think having an alter ego, going out with a pseudonym, helped you ask for money? And then why? It was a more direct and transactional way. So Crystal could send an email saying, I've sent this past you invoice to you three times. Do you have an expected date on payment? In a much easier way than, hi, I'm Ann, the CEO at Converge. We had dinner last night and we're best friends. And when you get to paying that invoice, it'll be fine. 
I actually think those role separations were really helpful. It helped to both keep my friendship with my clients in a very comfortable way. And it helped Crystal really serve her function, which was accounts receivable in getting the job done. She was really nice still in her approach, but she was very much more direct. (laughs) How did that idea come to you guys? It was really that conversation with you and your business partner of this isn't working. This doesn't look good. We need a different solution. It did. And again, we were self-financed. And so we were working through receivables in our bank loan in order to make our payments every month. We promised ourselves we'd pay every credit card every single month. And we would maintain a small line of credit that had a very low interest rate on it in order to finance our business for the long term. So that sustained growth was measured by what we had capital to do. And so my business partner actually had at a previous job, a woman named Crystal who did their collections. So oh, I love that. One night over a bottle of wine, that recollection came to us. Crystal was reborn. She was, and she was good. She oh, was good. What an exciting time for you guys to build a business that sounds like it got a lot of traction. You mentioned earlier, and that at that time you were some of the only female business owners that you knew and you didn't really have a network, but you were able to build one. I'm curious how you guys went about doing that. Very luckily, I had a number of clients in the space who were very successful women. So that was the first source of network. We actually had a global company. And so it was nice when we were in different cities to reach out to people on LinkedIn and see women who were doing amazing things. I absolutely love LinkedIn, favorite networking tool to be able to look at people who you want to model their behavior. So I would say that LinkedIn posts, articles, connections, looking at what the potential is for your future and what you want to be like was really important. I also joined a couple of associations in higher education. And so I joined the American Marketing Association and became part of their steering committee. And there were a number of really powerful, incredible women on that group that became friends. I also joined and took a certificate program on women in boards at Santa Clara University. And our friend and client there, Teresa, was one the woman who actually started that program. And she started it due to the fact that women in public boards in the United States weren't represented in an impactful way. And so the state of California actually created legislation around that. She had the brilliant idea to start a certificate program. And so I participated in that program where I met just a number of really incredible, powerful women who were doing really amazing work from entrepreneurship to leading top companies. And so at that time, this was pre-Women of Wealth participation by you. Were you having money conversations with these women that you were beginning to meet and get to know and befriend? We were having financial conversations about business and balance sheets and financial statements and EBITDA. And those types of conversations in relation to health of the business and exit, but we weren't having personal conversations about wealth. And I think, again, that's that alter ego of whether you're the CEO of a business or doing collections and whether you're talking about a business you work for and then talking about your personal, it's straddling that bridge to comfort of having those conversations. And so that eventually became something that that I think was more comfortable, but there wasn't a natural transition to that conversation. Would you share more about why you think that is? Is it because of perception that we should be on top of our personal lives? And when you're running a business, of course, you're going to ask questions about EBITDA. I think it's 
comfort level and networking in the way we've been brought up. It's always been taboo to talk about religion, politics, and money. And so I think whether you're at family dinner table or you're out with clients, that those are the three things that unless it gets out of hand, you probably don't lead with at least. And I feel like those conversations were not conversations that I had growing up with my female friends. And they definitely weren't conversations that up until recently I've had with my female friends. And I think with the Women of Wealth group, they have made it incredibly comfortable to have those conversations because they're proposing ideas and strategies and thoughts and giving available solutions that perhaps we hadn't thought about as far as long-term life insurance policies and investment in Bitcoin and things that were never just conversations that we've had in the past. I think it's two things. I think it is comfort level with those conversations and just exposure where it's just not something that I was exposed to. And perhaps many other people have been with their women networks and friends, but it just wasn't in my circle. And now that you've been through the wow experience and you've been building up muscles, how has that changed your life outside of the wow community? It makes it a much more rich and interesting conversation with good friends where I feel like I'm able to lead a conversation and even go out for a happy hour with girlfriends and talk about some of those things that aren't just, what are your kids doing? Or where did you buy your last great dress, et cetera. We actually can evolve into some of these things that are important and in a very comfortable way as far as I had this great stock tip the other day and we were talking about this. Does anyone else know about that? I'm not 100% comfortable with that at this point in time, but I'm much, much more comfortable than I used to be in the past. It's so important to get ourselves comfortable around this. And I'm wondering, besides the stock tip, would you share with our listeners any of your low-hanging fruit, ease into the conversation type questions you have when you're with friends? around money? One of the easiest questions around budgeting and thinking about long-term planning and the cost of healthcare and cost of health insurance and thinking about many of the friends that I work with are vice presidents of human resources. I think it's really interesting to maybe even start with, what are you seeing from your employees at work? What are the things that they're struggling with? What are some of the ways and innovative solutions in which you're having a chance to help them? And there's a number of people that I think that they help on a day-to-day basis. I also think it's more common for the idea of financial planning to be coming into the business. And so not only with my female friends, but also with a number of couple friends that we'll go out and have dinner with, I'll just ask a lot of questions. And it oftentimes brings up a number of ideas I never thought of or heard of or things that I should be thinking about. And so having that comfort level to be able to ask questions and feel like, I'm benefiting that maybe conversation at the entire table by bringing these things up. Really, really helpful. And you're warming our hearts talking about (laughs) all the benefits of talking about money and what it does, not only for ourselves, but for the people that we're in conversation with. So thank you for that. Tell us about starting Return on Good and being a co-founder with your husband. That must have involved a lot of money conversations. This is our second company. So my first company was with my husband as well. And it was awesome because a a number of husband wives probably don't feel like they can work together, but it helped us because we had a shared vision for what we wanted to, where we wanted to go. We both knew we wanted to work independently. 
We both knew we wanted to create our own wealth plan. We both knew that we loved and wanted to bring the idea of bringing jobs to our community and bringing jobs, especially in digital, where there weren't maybe as many at that point in time to younger people and to give them an opportunity to create their own wealth as well. That conversation started pretty early on in relation to our company. Return on good is... So we had a really nice, successful exit from our first business. And we decided that there was an opportunity to both focus on purpose, people, and profit in our next business. And so we love the world of impact investing because it touches so many lives from atmospheric water generation to clean energy, to carbon, to mental health apps, to educational gaming it really spans the gamut. And we really work with a number of different types of companies, but all of them have to have some social element of returning part of their profit to nonprofits and or the focus and mission of their company is really focused on the betterment of society as a whole. That's amazing. You said you and your husband wanted to create your own wealth plan. Describe what that means. As a blended family, we have five children. Their age ranges are from 35 to 17. And we wanted to be able to help finance their education in college. We wanted to be able to help them with down payments for their houses. We wanted to be able to help them with weddings and big events in their lives. You actually talked about all this, like what the things you're hoping to do. Yeah. And so we looked at what does that end game look like? And potentially what does that number look like? Which it always grows. They never get off the payroll completely. But we wanted to be able to contribute in that way, as well as give them goals and things to think about in managing their own wealth and in creating some sort of benefit for them as they grew. So looking at if we invest this on your behalf right now, you have the opportunity to see the statements every month and look at what the returns are and what that looks like and how long it takes from being able to have an initial conversation and putting thousand dollars into a Roth IRA to actually when that will actually come to fruition and what that will look like as far as lifetime value of money. Most of our conversations about money was in relation to what does the blueprint look like for what we want to be able to contribute now for them to have meaningful lives as well as in the future. That's so important. You're making me think of something a friend of mine in the profession has mentioned put on those binoculars, look into the future of what you want to have happen and then build backwards from there and make sure that the rising generation of your family has all the skills and competencies they need. And I would say we're definitely not perfect. No one loves a budget. I don't love a budget. If you really look at what that goal is and what you need to contribute and you pay yourself first and take that into consideration, it's always something that's very beneficial. And perfection isn't the goal based on what you're saying. So thank you for putting it out there and normalizing the fact that we all just need to have our goals (laughs) and work toward them. The same way with businesses, many of the behaviors in relation to having crystal do receivables and having conversations with banks about lines of credit were all related to, oh my gosh, we don't have any cash. We can't pay this bill or that bill. We need to figure out what's next. The best laid plans never, ever go perfectly. And so is the, what are we going to do in order to have an impact and do what we need to do? That kind of brings up some of the obstacles that you had mentioned before that you were able to get through in your life and how you're able to build on them and grow from them. And it sounds like that comes in very handy in this particular situation. 
I think in particular as a female business owner, it's hard to get a loan and it's hard to get credit. And so that's one of the things that I'm encouraged to see that the Bank of America's Tory Birch Foundation, there are a number of people out there right now that are supporting both female founders as well as diverse founders in their quest for success in relation to entrepreneurship. And I think in the past, that's been really hard. I think the other thing is just getting to that point of once you have success and you're starting to grow and starting to see revenue, how you can continue to attract investors or people that will support you that see the potential. That's a really hard game. There's so much competition for investors. Investors want to see immediate results. They want to see pretty secure financials in relation to what you think your projections are. And there's a lot of unknowns as an entrepreneur with the economy, with the world, with the markets. It's a interesting, difficult, challenging, but also thrilling place to work. And I really appreciate you and Sandy, you highlighting this idea of when you face obstacles, there's a lot of ways to get around them. And I think Crystal was a way that solved it as an example. She's famous. She was famous with all of our employees. I'm loving her. (laughs) I'm thinking this is great. If you have this obstacle, how do you solve it? You can go straight through or you can try to figure out ways around. I'm curious if there's other ways you've thought of attacking your financial obstacles that might be interesting to share. I think especially with clients, we really benefited from having a good advisory board. A year into our company, we started an advisory board with several gentlemen who were professionals who had done amazing work. And we met with them on a monthly basis and we reviewed financials. We reviewed cash flow. We reviewed where we were with staffing and products and services. And they were so helpful in let's create long-term contracts. Let's create a longer outcause. Let's create incentives for prepayment. Let's create a way in which for you to think about having more control and more predictability over what you have as far as money coming in the door. Also, the expense side of the equation. Hey, did you guys really need to go to this conference that you spent this much money on? And what was the value of it? And they were really critical and helpful in that matter. And so from those conversations, we started doing strategic briefs before every conference. Have used those for 20 years, where every conference we go to, we outline an objective, the cost, what we expect the return to be the number of potential pieces of business that we anticipate getting out of that specific conference, how to control costs, and then what the expectation should be. And so that level of discipline that we had to report on and became accountable for has been something that has helped us throughout our careers. So I think forming that advisory team of just people who are smart, who can help you and hold you accountable is really helpful. I love the holding accountable part. That's really important. And tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? My next money conversation is with my college daughter, who is a junior, who is amazing, very concerned about money in relation to she's an ROTC student. And so when she evaluated colleges, she looked at the cost benefit and what she would be spending, et cetera, and had that conversation. But it will be in relation to her next job, finding a job that is not an unpaid internship and that actually pays the bill. So that'll be this weekend when she comes home for a bit. The other will be in relation to my son and he is a senior in high school and evaluating colleges, filling out applications. And 
really looking at ROI of degree value outcomes, what the jobs that you're interested in are actually earning and how you're going to pay that back if you actually do have college debt and what you'll need to earn every single year in order to be able to pay that back in a reasonable time. And especially with interest rates where they are now and with the cost to borrow money, definitely a conversation that we're having as well as with our own business. As we grow and look to expand, it's that what is a small business loan cost right now? How will that be impacted in the next six months? What does money cost? Are there alternative sources of money that are less, whether it's leveraging current assets and borrowing against that, or whether it's actually creating some other type of investment? And you are amazing. These conversations with your kids show that you've been having money conversations all the time. I credit that to my parents. They were incredibly, incredibly good at having those conversations with us. I am absolutely not perfect. I say yes to more things than I probably should. We absolutely don't maximize and talk about ROI on things like a new pair of Air Jordans, but I do my best every day to keep trying. That's all we can do. My daughters at school, they hear practice makes progress, mom, not perfect. I love that line. <laughs> that is perfect. I love it. <laughs> Where is the best place for our listeners to find you? Our website is returnongood.org. And I am on LinkedIn and it's Anne without an E, everyone's middle name. So Anne without an E and Olson spelled very weirdly. So it's spelled O-L-E-S-O-N. So Anne without an E, throw the E into Olson and you got it. And amazing. Thank you for sharing your stories with us. You guys are absolutely lovely. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.